the National Archives podcast series. The National Archives goes to the movies, presented by Joe Pugh. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for coming. And hi to anyone listening in on the internet. Yes, you're listening to a podcast about moving pictures, but don't worry, I promise no one here is looking at anything interesting. (laughs) So the National Archives in Washington holds more than 300,000 reels of film footage. National Archives here in Kew holds approximately no reels. And consequently, we're not exactly a mecca for film fans, but just because you're not sitting in a building uh, packed to the rafters with highly flammable cellulose and nitrate film cans like you would be at the British Film Institute, that doesn't mean we've got nothing to contribute to the history of cinema in this country. Between the 1930s and the 1960s, directors working for various official government bodies, uh, the Empire Film Unit, the Post Office and so on, invented the documentary genre as we understand it today. Films like um, Harry Watt and Basil Wright's Nightmare, or Song of Ceylon, Humphrey Jennings' groundbreaking Fires Were Started, or the brilliant Listen to Britain. These are exactly the sort of films that I won't be talking about today. (laughs) While our records on government factual films are very extensive, I wanted to try and look the other way to see what records were held here on fiction films, the films that we all spend most of our time in the cinema actually watching. So I'm going to be talking specifically about records we hold here relating to feature film production. The story of cinema in Britain that you get when you put those records together is it's a slightly bizarre one. Some of the greatest films ever made have entirely failed to leave any mark at all on our files here, and some films where the cameras never turned get their own slice of shelf space down in the repositories. This is a history told by a partial and prejudiced historian, and that historian is me. But it's also the government, and what we'll see as we go on is the British government's kind of changing attitude towards film. And, I, and I've got to come clean. I said on the, on the ad we would get from the silence to the 70s, and I, I'm pretty sure we're not going to make it in an hour. But I'll talk quickly, and we'll, we'll, see how we, we'll see how we go. I want to start in 1951 at the Festival of Britain on the redeveloped South Bank. And in with all the other futuristic buildings, Dome Discovery, the Skyline, was the festival's purpose-built telecinema. And its programme mostly consisted of short documentary and experimental films, including 4 in 3D, which is what's going on here. But in the build-up to the festival, there were on top of these all sorts of plans for really lavish feature-length productions. Alexander Corder was going to produce a film set at the 1851 Great Exhibition, whose centenary of the festival was celebrating. Richard Todd was going to star in a sumptuous version of The Mayor of Casterbridge. And Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger were shooting their operatic Tales of Hoffman. And Hoffman was released a couple of months after the end of the festival. But none of those other projects actually happened. What did happen was the festival's one official feature, which was The Magic Box, starring Robert Donat as cinema pioneer William Fraser Green. Magic Box features just about everybody in the British film industry. It sometimes he's like, often in absurdly small roles. We've got Googie Withers, Peter Ustinoff, Ernest Sessinger, Margaret Rutherford, Joyce Grenville, Michael Redgrave, Sid James, Michael Horton, Thora Heard, William Hartnell, Morris Going, Richard Attenborough, Blink, and you'll miss loads of them. Laurence Olivier briefly appears in the film's, probably the film's most affecting scene, when Donat, tears streaming down his face, demonstrates his finally working projector to Olivier's astonished police constable. But, but it's rather an odd film for a celebration. Freeze Green is depicted as a totally selfish and self-obsessed with his work on moving pictures to the exclusion of everything else. His finances and family suffer. His children all go and sign up to fight in the First World War, so they're no longer a financial burden to him. <laughs> But what the film does attempt to do is to stick up for the power of films and to try, frankly, to muddy the waters over who invented them. The scene with Olivier makes for great cinema, but it's, it's not necessarily great history. But if Frieza Green wasn't exactly the pioneer the magic box makes out, I should stress it's, it's a broadly biographical film, it is based on a biography of William Frieza Green, then who was? The enigmatic Louis Le Prince working in Leeds, whose few seconds of paper negatives from the 1880s survive at the National Media Museum in Bradford, We'll never know what Le Prince might have achieved. He stepped one day onto a train to Paris from Dijon and was never seen again in September 1890. The Lumiere brothers began public screenings in 1895 and Thomas Edison's name becomes so closely associated with the early history of moving pictures that turn-of-the-century showmen in England stole his name and made it look like America's most celebrated inventor was visiting towns like Accrington. Spending time sorting this out misses the point in a way. For a long time, we've insisted on the absolute novelty of the invention of cinema, and we've told rather patronising stories about dumb Victorians thinking they were about to get run over by trains that they were watching on a screen. And in fact, the Victorians have been enjoying rather similar devices for years, magic lanterns, myriaramas, mutoscopes, zoopraxiscopes, the um, idafusicon, 
film has been rightly called the bastard child of other forms of entertainment which became legitimised. And in its early days it had to be sold hard to a seasoned public who thought they'd seen it all. This is why the first cinema exhibitors were serious showmen who knew how to handle curiosities and who quickly learned how to work with the medium's shortcomings. And we think of silent film, for example, as silent, and they weren't. Right from the start, the sort of films you would see in uh, the industrial north, a Michelin Kenyon, maybe, from, say, 1902 onwards, would have had musical accompaniment from the same bands uh, recorded for the screen earlier in the week, or perhaps even that morning, for the evening performance. Showmen would fire gunshots in sync with sneaky bores on screen or even employ ventriloquists to do the voices. And almost no film development happens when you think. Colour film was invented in 1906. Sound films were around long before Al Jolson's The Jazz Singer in 1927. But in the second decade of the 20th century, there was still room for a showman. In 1911, the London film producer Will Barker decided that his next picture would be a huge publicity event a high-profile adaptation of William Shakespeare's Henry VIII, piggybacking on the successful production then running in the West End, a sort of Edwardian Mamma Mia. The cast and all the sets from the production's run at Her Majesty's Theatre in the Haymarket were moved to Barker's studio complex at Ealing at significant cost, and the talk was that the production star, the great Victorian actor-manager Herbert Beerbohm Tree, was being paid £1,000 a day. The composer Edward German, who'd been involved in music production for previous uh, previous versions of the play, was given an extra payment of 50 guineas for a new, fil a new theme for the film's coronation scene. The purpose-built cinemas were just starting to replace theatres and musicals for film shows, but of course they would all have had orchestras and bands of various, various different sizes. But not to be content with all of this, Barker announced that rather than selling his prints to exhibitors, leading to the sort of wear and tear that we see on many archive copies of silent features, they would be available to rent only for a strict period of 28 days, after which they would be destroyed a guarantee of the quality of Barker motion picture photography films. Barker publicly burnt all 20 prints of Henry VIII in front of reporters, and no print of this film is now believed to survive. And that's the fate, I should say, of approximately four-fifths of the films made in Britain before 1930. But in this case, it is possible to reconstruct the tiniest fragment of this film. This is the copyright registration form Will Barker filed at his Soho office in May 1911. And attached to it, you can see on the left here, uh, eight sequential frames of Henry VIII. There's about half a second of film there. More than a still, less than a clip. Everybody ready for the shortest premiere in history? I've, I've cheated a bit. So the result isn't very dramatic. What I think this demonstrates, apart from whether anyone in the room is epileptic, if I leave it running too long, <laughs> is that some history is not recoverable. There's probably no one alive today who saw this film in its entirety, and there's no evidence that anyone ever will. It's arguably even less possible to experience than the Edwardian theatre production that produced it. I want to move on from this important but rather shadowy lost British film to two of the biggest American pictures of the same decade that have both left their mark on our records. And the first is uh, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation, which I'm sure you've all heard of, was absolutely huge. It was the most popular American film of the silent era and made about $10 million. And in today's money, that's getting close to the same as Titanic. Birth of a Nation has been, over the years, awarded a lot of firsts that it doesn't really deserve. You can still find online people calling it the first feature film, which is an accolade that any Australian will tell you belongs to the 1906 film The Story of the Kelly Gang, which was directed by um, Charles Tate in Melbourne. And many of the shooting techniques that Griffith employs in the film, his use of cuts and his clever choices of shots that once considered to be his own invention, can now be clearly seen in other earlier films. It's also extremely long and, for my money, a bit intermittently engaging. And it's also the only mainstream I'm aware of in which the audience are expected to cheer the arrival of the Ku Klux Klan, <laughs> which went down well with President Woodrow Wilson, but doesn't sit so well with modern audiences. And in fact, the overt racism of Birth of a Nation was considered by Britain's colonial office when it was released in September 1915. The Lord Chamberlain, amongst other things, Britain's theatre censor, received a complaint about Birth of a Nation, which, not having any authority over the silver screen, he sent to the Home Office, who in turn passed it on to civil servants under the colonial secretary, Andrew Boner Law. Now, that letter isn't actually in the file, but it's not difficult to deduce that it raised issues of race consciousness, which the colonial office weren't really intellectually ready to address. And the question was, would Africans in British colonies be offended by the portrayal of black people in Birth of a Nation, which was then screening in London? And the internal discussions are very hesitant. 
I understand that the Birth of a Nation film deals with the war between the North and the South and is intended to defend the point of view of the South. No doubt, therefore, there may be parts of the picture which are likely to wound the susceptibilities of American Negroes, but I think the Negroes of the British Empire are very indirectly connect concerned, and the Secretary of State might well decline to pronounce a definite opinion. But perhaps it may be thought desirable to send some member of the office to give us first-hand information. If so, please don't send me, as it will be inconvenient for me to go this week. <laughs> Some of the officers are a bit, bit keener on the flicks. I incline to agree with Mr McNaughton. Censoring of productions on thin grounds can easily grow into an absurdity. Thus, the Admiralty might ban The Man Who Stayed at Home. It's a British film by pioneering director Cecil Hepworth. On the grounds that an Admiralty official is represented as a German spy and so on. However, one could decide better after seeing the film, and I'm willing to sample it myself in the public interest and at the public expense. <laughs> Another of the department argues it might possibly give offence. Evidently, some will say it does, and there's every reason for avoiding the slightest ill feeling. And more bullishly, his colleague writes, on the face of it, it seems to be quite wrong to assume that the Negroes of Nigeria would take offence at anything which happens to American Negroes. They've never hitherto shown any sign of such sensitiveness. And just when they're about to agree that Bonalore officially has no opinion, unofficial scribbles authoritatively. I think Mr Strachey might see the production, so we get, we get his verdict. And he says, I saw The Birth of a Nation on Saturday night. It deals at great length with the American Civil War and the situation which arose after the war in the southern states when the emancipated Negroes, in some states at least, obtained majorities at the polls and made themselves extremely obnoxious to the whites. The fighting scenes were most realistic and admirably done, but unfortunately the producer had found it necessary to introduce a love interest, so that the exciting parts were interrupted by slabs of sentimental stuff of an odious kind. <laughs> I would gladly support any proposal to have this part of the show eliminated. As regards the rest, the Negroes, with the exception of a few typical faithful slaves, are certainly exhibited in an unfavourable light, as the point of the thing seems to be to show the abuses and excesses which followed the acquisition of political power by a mass of people who are unfitted to exercise it. Obviously, that sticks in the mind of the colonial office. It might give pain to American Negroes, but it is absurd to regard Negroes as of a single nationality as the writer of the letter to the Home Office does by comparing them with Russians. The show has now been running for some time and no objection seems to have been taken to it, even to the sentimental parts, and I recommend that we should leave it alone. And that recommendation is followed up. Big concepts there of, of race and nationality and no real answer to the question that we can see must have been raised in the original letter. Racism was big box office in 1915. This is Cecil B. DeMille's film, The Cheat, and it made a huge star out of charismatic Japanese baddie Sesu Hayakawa, who brands uh, Fanny Ward's spendthrift socialite with a hot iron rather than accept repayment of a loan. And this oddly led to so much success he was able to set up his own production company. However, the film also generated many complaints about its portrayal of the Japanese, both in America and in Britain, Japan's wartime ally at this time. The film reached the UK in the summer of 1916 and produced immediate protests from the Japanese embassy who called it highly offensive and described a Rudyard Kipling quote in one of the subtitles as repulsive. It is said that the picture was manufactured in America with the express purpose of arousing anti-Japanese feelings, the embassy warned darkly. They expressed concerns that they'd been informed by Japanese living in Britain that spectators seemed to have been greatly moved against the Japanese. However, the letters actually in the Home Office file comes from Ennius Mackey, who's a bookseller and stationer from Stirling, who's seen the film in Edinburgh, and he says, I came away with the full conviction that it's placed upon the British market by a German propagandist agent to implant our public with the idea the Japanese is a lower order of humanity than the American or Anglo-Saxon. If it was Russia or France, so other Allied powers in World War I, that was so misrepresented, there would be a row in the audience. And he slightly undermines his right on credentials by calling the people in the cheap seats the scum of the pit. Nevertheless, unlike with Birth of a Nation, and presumably because of the embassy's involvement, the Home Office, the Home Office takes this very seriously. And they write to the newly formed British Board of Film Censors, and the BBFC, it's about four years old, and independent of government, and we'll talk more about that later. Showing massive racial sensitivity, the Home Office writes offhandedly, in ordinary times, probably no one would object to this film, but at the present moment, it's desirable not to cause any offence to the Japanese. They ask the BBFC to see what it can do. Now, the BBFC hasn't granted the film a certificate, but it's, it's very early days in the system, so that clearly hasn't stopped the cheat's wide release since it's on all over London and in Edinburgh. 
cinema licensing is officially controlled by local authorities and the BBFC's ratings are more like guidelines. And the weakness of their position is made very clear in the snotty letter they received back from famous players Lasky, the film company, uh, their lawyers. They say, we're not satisfied that we can advise our clients to take any immediate steps to withdraw this film from exhibition and they end by questioning the BBFC's authority. But in, in this period the Home Office do have a trump card in their back pocket which is the Defence of the Realm Act usually called Dora, presumably because that sounds friendly and not like one of the most draconian pieces of legislation ever passed in Britain. Dora had far-reaching effects, like including pub licensing hours that persisted into the 1980s, and famous players Lasky decided they didn't want to be charged with prejudicing His Majesty's relations with a foreign power and withdrew the film. And the Home Office actually sent the Met round to London cinemas to check that it wasn't being shown. So that seemed like the job was done until 1920. Famous players Lasky did eventually respond to the widespread criticism of the film because it was anxious to keep on showing it. So in 1918, they decided that the way to resolve the accusations of anti-Japanese racism was to sensitively re-edit the film, to rename Sensei Hayakawa's character and make him Burmese. And surely then no one would now find the film objectionable. But when this version reached London, the Japanese embassy were again unimpressed Sesu Hayakawa is well known as a Japanese film star. The clothes he wears in the picture are unmistakably Japanese. The house in which he lives is eminently furnished in the Japanese fashion. They call the new cut of the film iniquitously sensational and demand action once again, even though by now it's February 1920, well after the end of the war, Dora is still in force and the film is again withdrawn. And later in the 1920s, when many of the restrictions in Dora have been repealed, the Home Office probably spent time wishing they still had such an uncompromising statute. But before we move on to some of the racier offerings of the 1920s, I want to cover some of the big pictures of the First World War. Obviously the most famous British film of this decade was The Battle of the Somme. It's really not possible to overstress how popular this film was. The historian Nicholas Hiley has suggested that 20 million people watched the film in its first six weeks alone. And the entire population of Britain at that time was less than 44 million, so that's quite a lot of people. One of our files records the impact that screenings of the film had on inmates at Dartmoor Prison, where the film was received with intense interest and very marked enthusiasm. The file says prisoners described the film as champion, and a Methodist minister who attended one screening in February 1917 at the prison wrote, I was deeply interested in the film, which I find affected some of the prisoners even to tears. And of course, we know now that some of the most arresting images in the film are the short sequence of men going over the top, for example, was in all probability faked. But what isn't so well known is that Somme had a number of sequels, the Battle of Ancre and the Battle of Arras, both released in 1917. But these both had diminishing box office returns. They were far more sanitised than Somme, which implies that the government failed to understand what had made the film popular in the first place. And this, of course, happens fairly often in modern Hollywood, particularly to George Lucas. <laughs> the response from what for simplicity we'll call the Minister of Information, was to commission two massive new blockbusters, the only two full-length fiction films put out by the British government during the First World War. And the first would be made by the most famous director in the world, D.W. Griffith, and the second would prove to be so successful a piece of propaganda that it would never be released. On the face of it, it seems slightly odd that the world's most successful director would be interested in making a propaganda picture for a country of which he was not a citizen, had no particular connection to, in order to influence a war in which his own country was neutral. Griffith's towering reputation in 1917 rested principally on two films, Birth of a Nation, and his truly epic 1916 film that's ironically actually called Intolerance. But Griffith had a secret. Intolerance, though it was critically acclaimed, was a massive flop, and he was absolutely desperate for fun. So an offer to make a film in Europe was very welcome. And Griffith shot footage in England and in France, and the resulting film was suitably grandiose. Hearts of the World was the biggest and one of the longest films put out by Hollywood in 1918. And the British release featured appearances by the Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, and the Prime Minister himself, wishing Griffith luck with his movie. Hearts made Griffith and indeed the British government a lot of money, making £30,000 in Britain and half a million dollars in the US. And like Birth of a Nation, it focused on Lillian Gish and Robert Harron and demonises an alien people, but in the case of Hearts, it's the beastly Hun who try and ruin the happiness of our sweet-faced hero and heroine. At the premiere in Los Angeles, Griffith's camera assistant Carl Brown was struck by his mentor's use of sound in the production as the film ended with the thunder of American boots marching into France. There was only one mistake made in the making of the picture, he wrote. Nobody foresaw the mood of that audience. Otherwise, they'd have had a recruiting station set up in the lobby and they'd have signed up every man jack, including me. <laughs> and this technique would, of course, be used literally in 1986 by the US Navy after screenings of Top Gun. 
The combination of SOM and its sequels and Hearts of the World, I think, really woke the government up to the power of film. When war broke out, wrote an ex-Ministry of Informa uh, Information civil servant after the war, the cinema was almost universally regarded as an instrument for the amusement of the masses, a sort of moving edition of the penny dreadful. It's not too much to claim that the motion picture is the most powerful agent for publicity now in existence. And David Lloyd George appears to have reached this conclusion sometime in 1917, and hence the second World War I film, which has a number of names. In papers here at the archives, it's usually called the National Film. It's sometimes referred to as the Invasion of Britain, and that's what it's about, but probably on release, it would have been called Victory and Peace. And this was a film conceived unquestionably by David Lloyd George himself, a film that might, again to quote the ex-Ministry man, speak to the hearts of the duskiest Aborigines and the smallest schoolchildren, and a film that was explicitly planned to be the biggest thing of its kind in existence. The novelist and screenwriter Hall Kane, now almost entirely forgotten, although by bizarre coincidence I did mention him in my last talk, but then a celebrated romantic author and scenarist of a number of hit books and films such as The Christian, The Manxman and The Bondman, received a letter from the Prime Minister inviting him to prepare a script on behalf of the National War Aims Committee and his acceptance at no charge was reported in the Times in November 1917. And Hall Caine went on to select a director settling on Herbert Brennan, an Irish filmmaker who'd been working in Hollywood since his teens. And the film historian Nicholas Reeve suggests that he may well have had in mind Brennan's stirring 1913 production of Ivanhoe, shot in Wales, and his most recent picture, the anti-war film War Brides. Hall Caine spent months on the script, which he called one of the best of my imaginative creations. And it used a, a counterfactual setting, rather like Kevin Brownlow's It Happened Here, or Noel Coward's Peace in Our Time, or um, Robert Harris's Fatherland, by looking at life in Chester under occupation by the Kaiser's Germany. Production took place on a huge scale. Thomas Hardy and Rudyard Kipling contributed to the script. Edward Elgar was commissioned for the score. The star-studded cast included Ellen Terry, Murray Law, Matheson Lang, Sam Livesey and Arthur Applin, all donating their services at no charge to the war effort. Money was spent billeting horses and special trains. The explosives budget alone was over £250. And the population of Chester turned out to play themselves. British troops were supplied to play Germans, supervised by real army officers. And film magazines were struck by the scene in which occupying troops clash with the women of Chester, with Brennan hollering at them to fight in character. No one present during the taking of this scene would wish to see anything more real, declared Cine Weekly. And this <coughs> remained the most vicious assault on Chester committed to the screen until the launch of Hollyoaks in 1995. <laughs> A note in our file from September 1918 shows how the film's production got more and more grandiose. The reason for an additional sum, writes Giddy W.A. Norton to the Treasury, is that certain unexpected facilities have recently been obtained and utilised, which, although demanding this further sum, they will more than add that value to the picture. The use of captured German submarines, this is confidential information, with the lighting of the interiors, large numbers of people to represent the invasion of Chester, made possible only by the active cooperation of the military and other authorities, and all of the incidental expenses make it necessary to requisition the sum of £5,000. There is no question that this film will be the most remarkable film production made in this country, and but for the assistance of troops, artillery, aeroplanes, naval boats, etc., would have cost many thousands more. And the finished film ran to nine reels and cost over £28,000, massively over budget, and roughly seven times the cost of a conventional feature. I say finished, you might have noticed there's a potential problem with a blockbuster anti-German propaganda film being produced in the latter half of 1918. Can anyone suggest to me what that problem <laughs> might be? <laughs> yes, the war was over, and this was a very hard-hitting film. It was an extremely well-made film, by all accounts, and a film not beating about the bush, that was calculated to make its audience hate Germans. Was there any place for it in a post-armistice Europe? Could the government, in fact, even release it at all? As the film's backers, it was up to the Treasury to decide, and those are the files that we, that we hold here. I've received a letter signed by Lord Beaverbrook, Sir William Jury, and Mr Herbert Brennan, the producer, in which it is pointed out that the film is entirely unsuitable for exhibition today, in view of the entire change of circumstances brought about by the termination of the war. It is explained that it would not be only useless, but even harmful to the interests of the nation, to dispose of this film in any way in the market. The members of the National War Aims Committee were extremely reluctant to agree that the film should be destroyed, 
but after viewing it at a special exhibition arranged for the purpose, they were so divided in opinion, underlined, that I consider the safest course is to be guided by Lord Beaverbrook's verdict, and I have therefore to ask that their lordships may be pleased to sanction the destruction of this film for reasons of policy which are considered full and adequate by both the recent Minister of Information, the author, the producer, and myself. But the money men at the Treasury, unsurprisingly, they want some return on their investment and they're not going to ditch a film that they've spent really a fortune on if there's some chance of a return at the box office. There's quite a lot of recrimination, as you might imagine. The Treasury don't understand how a film that would have been suitable for exhibition in wartime could have become unsuitable and even harmful to the national interest in peacetime. I am to inquire what supervision was exercised by your committee or on their behalf by the Ministry of Information to secure that a suitable film was being produced for the large expenditure involved. And in fact, they're told, the production of a large film is, as you will readily understand, a highly technical matter in which the layman cannot possibly exercise any effective supervision. The only practical protection the state can have lies in the choice of its advisers. And the question then at the beginning of 1919 was, you know, how this film could be salvaged. The Treasury suggested it could be re-edited, but no one could see how this could be done. The question of adapting the film to meet the conditions due to the armistice has been considered, but it was found that the film is so unmistakably fitted for the particular purpose for which it has been made that it is quite impossible to make any radical alterations in it. In view of these facts and having a special regard to the atrocity and strike scenes, which form a prominent feature of the film, I'm directed to recommend for their Lordship's favourable consideration that the film be handed over to the Imperial War Museum for safekeeping on the understanding that no part of it is to be produced without their Lordship's sanction being first obtained. And transfer to the Imperial War Museum would have been an eminently sensible compromise, but that transfer didn't take place. In February 1920, the Treasury appointed a committee of two to watch a victory of peace. Sir Charles Davidson, one of the business advisers to the Ministry of Munitions, and Sir Charles Barry, MP for Bampshire in Scotland. And a screening was arranged for 10.30am on Friday the 19th of March 1920. And the two men sat in an otherwise empty cinema and watched the film. And they and the projectionist were the last people to see it in its entirety. So this is a report that they, uh, that they generated. You can see the points they made here. They talk about the, the, kind of the great value, the great propaganda value of the film. They also say the whole of the film is so bound up with the German barbarities and atrocities as to be unsuitable for production in times of peace. And it finishes, the film has no historical value and from the national point of view is not worth preserving. And the report carried on, we therefore recommend as the conditions for which the film was created no longer exist, no good purpose is to be served by keeping it in existence and it ought to be destroyed. And in fact, just one reel of the original nine of Victory and Peace now survives in the BFI's National Film Archive, and that's fewer than 10 minutes of footage. And most of that is not in a playable condition. But happily, not all lost films stay lost. On an autumn evening in 1918, while Herbert Brennan was still presumably merrily shooting his war epic, a taxi pulled up outside the offices of Ideal Film on Wardour Street, and out of it stepped a solicitor to attend a late meeting with the heads of Ideal, the Rousen brothers, Simon and Harry. The solicitor took out of his pocket, Harry later recalled, 20 Bank of England notes of £1,000 each, which he handed to my brother. We placed the negative and the positive films in his taxi, and that is the last I saw or knew about it. What the mysterious solicitor took away were the negative and positive prints of this film, the life story of David Lloyd George by the pioneering British director Maurice Elvey, who should be remembered as the man who invented the biopic. What the Rousens were handed was a cash sum equal to the film's budget. Neither one of them ever saw the film again. And film historians used to speculate on what it contained. One small clue came from a Ministry of Munitions file here at the archives, where Simon Rousen writes up formally uh, discussions with the Ministry granting facilities to help in the shooting of some segments uh, of the film, showing Lloyd George's time as the minister there. We're contemplating some pictures showing the expansion of the offices of the Ministry, from the small one-room office in Whitehall Place to the present time. We're planning also a series of pictures which would show the transformation of very small factories into very large ones and the erection of large industrial centres where nothing but practically rural solitude previously prevailed. We would like to show some of the infinite variety of occupations being carried on by women, which previous to the war were exclusively conducted by male labour. Would it be possible to take some aerial photographs of some busy hive of munitions enterprise? From the file, it wasn't clear if the Ministry even assented. But all of this became quite literally academic in 1994, when Viscount Tenby, Lloyd George's grandson, donated a load of stored film cans to the National Screen and Sound Archive of Wales, 
and a complete set of the reels of the life story turned out to be amongst them. And you can see here the film looks like it's in colour. In fact, uh, the scenes are shot in black and white and tinted according to LV's original plan. And, and this scene here, the Birmingham riots shot using literally thousands of extras you may have seen in the first of Andrew Marr's series on pre-war Britain recently. Had the film been released, wrote one film historian, LV might have been hailed the Griffith of Britain. And those munition scenes that perhaps on paper sounded a bit uh, dry, LV observes the factory processes lovingly, almost achieving a symbiotic relationship with Lloyd George as he casts an approving eye over the industry which he adapted to war conditions. There's nothing here at the archives to suggest where the 20 grand to pay off the Rousons came from or why it was felt so necessary to keep the film away from screens. The emphasis must have come from Lloyd George himself or those close to him. And it's been theorised that with the election of December 1918 looming, the film might have seemed too left-wing or self-aggrandising for release. Anyway, my copy's in the post. I think what the government's response to both these films demonstrates is moving away from film as a medium, really, in spite of the recommendations of the outgoing Ministry of Information. In wartime, this grubby, I don't want to say art form, had been a necessary evil for talking to the people, but that was over now, and really no one in government wanted to dirty their hands with it. And as if to make their point, the Home Office now found itself grappling with films that it considered plumbed new depths. In May 1922, the BBFC received a copy of Cocaine, a film set in shady nightclubs involving Chinese dealers, drug-taking actresses, suicide and murder, with a romantic subplot. Unsurprisingly, they weren't that keen to give it a certificate, and to strengthen their hand, they invited the Home Office to view the film. And as with the cheat, we see how close the BBFC are to government, and really, I'm going to suggest their so-called independence in the 1920s is largely a sham. The film seemed calculated, concluded the Home Office, to create a morbid interest in the use of cocaine at a time when the police are doing all they can to stamp out the illegitimate use in this country. If the object of this film is deterrent, it fails signally in its purpose. They also complained that the film didn't depict the effects of cocaine accurately. A single dose would not have the effect of turning a modest girl immediately into an abandoned hussy. With some fast talking, the BBFC managed to convince London County Council to ban the film, and this tends to make other local authorities follow their lead. But it turns out the film has been passed in Cardiff and Manchester, and outside London the board still has very little power. The Home Office are enlisted again to see if these towns can be persuaded to get cocaine off their screens. Manchester's mayor took the hint from the Home Secretary's letter and moved to have the film withdrawn. Cardiff is more intransigent. A marked difference of opinion exists, the mayor wrote back, as to whether its influence on an audience acts as a deterrent or an inducement to drugs. The chief constable unhesitatingly came to the conclusion that no harm would result from the exhibition of the film. And he pointed out, as there are no nightclubs of the type to be found in London, the facilities for the drug traffic in this city are so limited as to be practically non-existent. 1922 Cardiff, not a party town. The Home Office eventually get rid of the film after three screenings by passing on a complaint received by the Chinese consulate in London from Lo Hing, a Chinese man living in Cardiff, about the advertising used at the cinema. Cocaine, though lurid, was a somewhat topical film that tied into a number of high-profile news stories from London. And these press cuttings with their, their tabloid stories of sinister Chinamen like the fabulously named Brilliant Chang and a sign reading, read this first and then come and see the film, that were finally too much for Cardiff's chief constable. A complaint having been made, he shut the film down. And that's one to the Home Office. But having taken a firm line against drugs, matters very quickly turned to sex. Maisie's marriage was produced in 1923 by G.B. Samuelson and starred Lillian Hall Davis, one of Britain's leading silent actresses. It's based on Marie Stopes's married love only in the sense that, in the BBFC's words, it deals with the question of birth control, an important subject of a controversial nature, but one unsuitable for presentation before the mixed audiences of the cinema theatre. And take your pick if by mixed audiences you think they mean contraception is an unsuitable subject for women or simply for poor people. The story goes that Samuelson bought the rights because of the book's popularity, without any sense of what it was actually about. The BFI summarised the plot of the eventual film rather sweetly as a fireman's fiancé rejected by her father becomes a maid and finds small families happier than large ones. The Home Office strenuously objected to the film and were pleased when the BBFC demanded a title change and that references to contraception were removed from the film. I'm not quite sure how this was achieved, but it seemed to satisfy everyone. Grimsby Watch Committee said, there's absolutely nothing of an objectionable nature in the film which could be seen by anybody irrespective of age or sex. In Folkestone, the Morning Post reported, 
Colonel Broom Giles, a retired army doctor who is a member of the watch committee, said that one could safely take one's grandmother to see it, there being nothing obnoxious in it. So that's everybody except the Home Office, and in fact they move beyond the informal pressure used on cocaine. It's quite obvious from the file, which consists partly of long-ticked and crossed lists of different UK licensing authorities, that an orchestrated campaign against the film was run, an illegal orchestrated campaign that almost led to questions being raised in the House of Commons. They also attempted to stifle this style of advertising. Sorry, I've had to cut up this, um, this long poster from Sheffield, which used Murray Stokes' name to imply the book's title to get around the title change. And when Stokes discovered that the Home Office were trying to edge out these sorts of posters, she sent a blistering handwritten letter. That an author's name should be deleted from her work is such an infringement of common law right, it is incredible it should have been attempted. Kindly inform me by return whether you have instigated or sanctioned this. And in fact, though I'm sure the Home Office would have loved to have got her, her name off the posters. They were more objecting to, uh, to the mystery element that's, that's, that's used in this. Damage amounting to hundreds of pounds has already been done, for which I may be forced to sue. And they did manage to calm her down. Uh, they didn't manage to halt the film. And what we see from these cases is that our files seem to reflect a view of the film industry in this decade as very much a threat to public morals, rather than a tool for communication, as it was seen in the previous decade. When the BBFC started, it had just two rules, no nudity and what they called no materialisation of Christ. And these you know, now go on to grow quite a lot. And the title change rule was one of them. And that was actually established back in 1914, after an early production of uh, this film, Three Weeks. Three Weeks was a best-selling book, an actual novel this time, unlike Mary's Love. It was extremely well-known, as was its British author, Eleanor Glynn. It's hard to think of a modern equivalent to Eleanor Glynn because modern Hollywood regards writers as operating at approximately the level of pond life. Diablo Cody, the writer of Juno, is the closest I can come up with. A novelist, screenwriter and occasional director, Glynn became a stalwart of the Hollywood smart set, coining the concept of it and the, and the it girl. The novel Three Weeks features a love scene on a tiger skin rug and became a core celebre, producing the rhyme, Would you like to sin with Eleanor Glynn on a tiger skin? Or would you prefer to err with her on some other fur? When Three Weeks was first adapted for the screen in 1914, it caused the nascent BBFC serious problems. They passed it and then found, shock horror, that they were attacked by people who hadn't seen the film but knew the reputation of the book. And this led directly to their, their kind of naughty book's new name rule. It's obviously more of a fig leaf than anything practical. And also to calls for official government censorship from those who thought the BBFC too weak. And this is the tightrope that the BBFC has been walking throughout its existence. The Home Office, not in the firing line, felt comfortable expressing their own view. The present version appears to be far worse. It is an elaborate American production, finely staged, but full of indescribable incidents. I understand that Mr. T.P. O'Connor feels difficulty about suppressing the film because it is based on a book by a well-known author of which an uncommon number of copies have been sold in England and America. McLean was a smart operator and the Home Office were nervous of her society connections. There is a lot of money in this film which has already been circulated privately to a society audience and if the censors reject it, their decision will not be readily accepted by the trade. If, on the other hand, they pass it, they will probably forfeit a good deal of the confidence they've gained in the eyes of decent-minded people. I hope they'll decide to reject it. In fact, the BBFC passed the film, and we see here the limits of the Home Office's power. I am sorry that Mr T.P. O'Connor did not maintain his position, as it will be difficult to prevent the exhibition of other films based on undesirable novels, but I gather there were powerful interests behind this film. The title of the book is being freely used, as might have been expected. However, the plot appears to have been altered a little and objectionable incidents have been omitted and there is nothing more the Home Office can do. So so much that there for the Home Office's moral crusade and I want to move away from this country briefly and look at the position in Britain's overseas colonies in the 1930s. In August 1937 Edward Baines, an official at Government House in St Lucia, read an article in the sketch about the film Slave Ship, a 20th century Fox film starring Mickey Rooney, Wallace Beery and on the left there George Sanders. As far as I can judge by what I read about the film, I suggest that it would be most dangerous for the film to be exhibited in the West Indies at the present time when racial feeling runs so high and there is so much unrest. I cannot profess to understand the mentality of the persons who went to the trouble and expense of producing a film on such an unpleasant subject, which moreover shows up our forefathers in the worst possible aspect from the point of view of the descendants of slaves. This seems to me to rather miss the point of the film. My point is that he asks London to prevent the film's export to the colonies on the basis of a one-page article. 
And the Colonial Office duly tips off a number of other territories about the film, which they don't watch, and they respond in kind. Sounds most unsuitable, says Sierra Leone. We'll take appropriate action, says Gold Coast. No film answering its description would be suitable for exhibition here, but my favourite <laughs> is from The Gambia, who write, As there are at present no facilities for the exhibition of films to the public in The Gambia, we are unlikely to see anything of the film here. I am, however, bringing your letter to the attention of the police magistrate. I don't really know what, what action he would have taken. The other restrictions we have on file seem in some ways even more bizarre. The man who could work miracles based on the H.G. Wells short story and starring Ralph Richardson was banned from Malta, nowhere else, in case it upset Catholics. Responding to the allegation that the film's Everything is Thunder, a World War I spy drama, and Sabotage, directed by Alfred Hitchcock and based on a Joseph Conrad novel, have been withdrawn from screening in Palestine at the behest of the German Consul General. Our man in Jerusalem declares that on the contrary, these were prohibited on the grounds that their exhibition might be prejudicial to public security and that they would be very probably misunderstood by the great majority of the Palestine population to the detriment of British reputation. Thunder because it contains scenes of prison escapes and sabotage because it is a story of a scheme organised by foreign agitators, heavily underlined, to destroy London. And reading these notes you start to wonder if the Chief Secretary in Jerusalem thinks thrillers are the leading cause of social unrest in his territory. Really, these documents may be pretty trivial, but they say something concrete, I think, about the patchwork personal nature of colonial decision-making, which gave local administrators clearly very wide-ranging powers, which they could exercise in sometimes very peculiar ways. But uh, let, let's leave the colonies for Hollywood. In February 1939, with international relations at a difficult stage in Europe, to say the least, Foreign Office Minister Rab Butler received a letter from the MP E.H. Keeling presenting the view of an unnamed constituent. Keen's constituent said that Charlie Chaplin was about to portray Herr Hitler satirically on screen and went on, It is obviously most undesirable that such a film should be exhibited in this country and I venture to think that the government should make it known immediately that its exhibition in Great Britain will be forbidden. And the surprising thing is that the Foreign Office take this letter very seriously. They asked the British consulate in LA to approach the company making the film and prevail upon them to treat the subject in such a way that it could be exhibited in this country without giving offence to Germany. By May 1939, the consulate are able to report on details of Chaplin's script in some depth. They know the names of the main characters, Hinkle and Gasolini. The identity of these two characters leaves nothing to the imagination, especially as one of them will wear the famous moustache, which is so marked a characteristic of a personage other than Mr Chaplin. They're aware of the famous Barber's Chair scene and the character of Herr Garbage, the propaganda minister. The foregoing are but minor indications of the bitter and ridiculous quality of the satire which Mr Chaplin proposes to apply to his production. We have had some personal conversation with him on the subject and find that he is entering into the production with fanatical enthusiasm. His racial and social sympathies are with classes and groups that have suffered most in the dictatorship countries. Imagine that. And a later document accuses Chaplin of what it calls anti-totalitarian bias. Perhaps it seems to me that these represent massive dysfunction within the Chamberlain administration. And to add injury to insult, the Foreign Office tips off the BBFC in by now familiar language to give the film the most careful scrutiny should it be presented to you. And I think we've established that with the BBFC's incestuous government contacts, that's code for ban it. In fact, the BBFC had already cabled Chaplin's company in March to warn him of its ban on the depiction of living individuals without their permission. By 1939, I have to say, the PBFC banned so many things. The fact that more films weren't rejected by them is purely down to self-censorship by filmmakers, which is obviously not a great situation creatively. Initially, Chaplin's firm claimed there's no script and no definite story, but finally the comedian came out defiant, insisting to the press, I have never wavered from my original determination to produce this picture. I'm not worried about intimidation, censorship or anything else. If he decides to continue with the project, says the BBFC Catterley, he will naturally have himself to blame if he finds the subject cannot be certificated in this country. I have to say, this extremely unedifying correspondence makes no one in the corridors of power come across well. Obviously, once the war starts, there's a different attitude within government. In April 1941, the Ministry of Information received a note from R.R. R. Ford, the film officer at the British consulate in L.A. What a great job! Who says the consulate general saw Chaplin the previous week. Mr Chaplin expressed a conviction that if he could make his next important feature film in England, he would like to do so, as he felt that such a policy on his part would be beneficial to our interests. And they turn him down. And they turn him down because they don't think that they can work with him. 
they think that he's going to need facilities that are just too difficult for, for Britain to provide. And the, the fact that he's no tur and takes a long time over his productions, they think it's going to be embarrassing. And it's really impossible not to contrast this with the wide-eyed enthusiasm with which the government had greeted auteur directors in 1917, 1918. So what sort of fiction filmmakers were being encouraged by the government? Well, there were the archers, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. They were producing terrific films in this period, and the fact that a number of them were produced under the auspices of the British government ought to make the National Archives an excellent source for researching Powell and Pressburger films. But the fact is that, in general, their production seems to have left very few traces in our records. We have a thick file on 49th Parallel, which, along with uh, Alexander Corder, produced The Lion Has Wings, was one of the very few feature films during World War II to be funded directly by the Treasury. But it's immensely tedious, and the file, I mean, not, not 49th Parallel. But the only interesting fact I gleaned from it was that Anton Volbrook agreed for the production to donate £100 to the Red Cross for every day he was on set. Michael Powell's autobiography, A Life in Movies, I think gives us some idea of why this is. Yes, A Matter of Life and Death came about because Jack Beddington from the Ministry of Information asked Powell and Pressburger to make a film to prove to the Americans and the British how much they love each other. But it was over a big lunch, a couple of bottles of wine, and no one was taking minutes. These relationships were often informal, and the documentary filmmaker Paul Rota wrote after the war that the trouble with the Ministry of Information was that a film tended too often to become a file and not a film. Sometimes, of course, it was the other way around, and perhaps that's no bad thing. Happily, one film that is both a film and a file is The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. Now, the government's view of this film's production as highly undesirable is one of the most famous examples of state interference in British filmmaking, but it's a good story and it bears repeating, especially in the light of another film released in Britain a few years earlier. Allegheny Uprising is a John Wayne film set in the 18th century, and at first glance, comparisons with Colonel Blimp are not obvious, Blimp being one of the greatest films ever made, and Allegheny Uprising being, frankly, a bit rubbish, despite posters calling it the thrill-romance giant of the year. But what these two productions have in common is that they were both under pressure to withdraw from Britain's cinemas. Our Board of Trade files record that about the time that Uprising was applying for quota status, so in other words, when the film had been screened perhaps a handful of times in the UK, in the summer of 1940. Sir Edward Villiers of the Ministry of Information wrote to RKO, the stu film studio behind it, and other actual good films like Citizen Kane, and requested that the film be withdrawn. It's not clear that the Ministry of Information's correspondence on the film survived, so I can't say exactly why they came to the decision that they did. RKO simply informed the Board of Trade that they were withdrawing the film at the request of the Ministry of Information. It's probably because the film represents, in the words of one amateur film critic, the worst of the British military character and depicts the British governing class in 18th century America as stupid, arrogant and maddeningly officious. And in wartime, this was probably considered to be harmful to morale or to Anglo-American relations. RKO put on the record to the Board of Trade the very big loss to this company, advertising, trade shows, print costs, production of the negative, to say nothing of the cancellation of a vast number of bookings amounting to several thousands of pounds. But they don't protest seriously, and the film is ruined at the UK box office. Compare this with Colonel Blimp, Pal and Pressburger, and David Lowe's by turns romantic and biting satire on the British military establishment. Who has seen Colonel Blimp? Um, if you haven't, it's an absolutely terrific film. Roger Livesey's excellent with that amazing kind of throaty growl, playing army commander Clive Wincandy over a period of 40 years, a man increasingly and very poignantly behind the times. And Anton Volbrook is, I think, just possibly even better, playing his friend, the German officer with the overcomplicated name, Theodor Kretschmar-Schuldorf. I've been practising that. It's shot in this very striking technicolour, which makes it look totally different from most other British films of the period. And I could happily talk all afternoon about what exactly the film's saying about British values and interwar relations with Germany and so on. But well, since we don't want to be here all night, let's just talk about the view the War Office took of the film. P.J. Grigg wrote to Winston Churchill in September 1942, the, the War Minister, during Blimp's production, and declared that he thought it of the utmost importance to get it stopped. Now, this shouldn't have come as entirely a shock to Powell and Pressburger because the War Office had already refused to support the film's production. They'd probably read a script, but even if they hadn't, they would have been very familiar with what the file calls the brilliant cartooning of the character of Colonel Blimp from David Lowe's strip in the Daily Express of the 1930s. Michael Powell's autobiography gets the sequence of events a little out of kilter here, but it's clear from our file was when the filmmakers decided to carry on, regardless of a lack of military cooperation, that the War Office attempted to halt production. First, the Ministry of Information tried the same approach they'd taken with RKO over Allegheny Uprising. They simply asked Powell and Pressburger not to make the film. 
The stick the two ministries also used was to deny access to the intended lead actor of that stage, Lawrence Olivier, by refusing to release him from his war duties at the fleet air arm. Michael Powell asked point blank if the Ministry of Information forbade them to make the film. And according to Powell, Brendan Bracken, it's a bit unclear, but let, let's say it's Brendan Bracken, the, the minister said, Oh, my dear fellow, after all, we're a democracy, aren't we? You know we can't forbid you to do anything, but don't make it because everyone will be really cross and the old man, Churchill, will be very cross and you'll never get a knighthood. This did not dissuade the pair from beginning production. Incidentally, you might wonder how you make a war film during a war without official access to military equipment or uniforms. Michael Powell wrote, we stole them. Any prop man would laugh at the question. So this is what led to Griggs note to Churchill. The War Office listed their objections in a memo recording that the producer claimed the film is intended as a tribute to the toughness and keenness of the new army in Britain and shows how far we progressed from the blimpery of the pre-war army. Whatever the film makes of the spirit of the young soldier of today, the fact remains that it focuses attention on an imaginary type of army officer who has become the subject of ridicule to the general public. And there is the inescapable suggestion that such a man is an example of those who have risen to high command in the army in the period preceding this war. The War Office also complained that the film's treatment of the Germans was too even-handed. They are depicted as stiff and over-regimented in peace, and as little more than very intense realists in war. The thug element in the makeup of the German soldier, sounds like they'd be reading their own propaganda, is ignored, and indeed the suggestion is that if we were exactly like the Germans, we should be better soldiers. And Churchill's brisk response was to ask Brendan Bracken for a plan to stop production in its tracks. I am not prepared to allow propaganda detrimental to the morale of the army, and I'm sure the cabinet will take all necessary action. But Bracken simply tells him that the ministry has no power to suppress the film and warns against a kind of government censorship suppressing films expressing harmful or misguided opinions. He says this would require compulsory censorship of opinion upon all means of expression and that this would provoke infinite protest. And he suggests a quiet word with the man paying for the film's production, the mighty arch-Methodist bread millionaire and film mogul, J. Arthur Rank. And I should stress that Rank could have pulled the plug at any point and the film would have died to death. So his support was absolutely crucial to the archers. Cabinet minutes, again, not Ministry of Information files, show that government did indeed have a word with Rank, who agreed to screen the film for the Ministry and the War Office at the rough cut stage. And if they took the view that the film was undesirable, he would arrange for it to be withdrawn. And this was September. When the film was screened the following May in 1943, the Cabinet was told that it was unlikely to attract much attention or to have any undesirable consequences on the discipline of the army. And PJ Griggs said he thought the right plan was to allow the film to be shown. He also added it was a V-dull film. In fact, this wasn't the end of the story. Having failed to stop the film from being produced, Churchill directly intervened to stop the film being exported abroad. And at first, Brendan Bracken told the full Cabinet he was not able to prevent the film's export. And if I could, how could I stop it when so many ministers attended the premiere? Eventually, extremely reluctantly, he hit upon the idea of directing the air ministry to deny air transport to get the film print physically out of the country. And at this point, he develops a sort of Tourette syndrome where he can't stop talking about this illegal ban. And this is presumably deliberate in an attempt to talk old, never give in, into backing down. The statements appearing in the newspaper saying that it has been banned probably only serve to advertise it. I think the circulation of this evident fantasy presents no dangers at all. But if you still feel strongly that it should not go abroad, I will try to find some means of continuing our illegal ban. Winston Seymour Churchill, I think you should certainly stop it as long as you possibly can. So that, that doesn't work. And about ten days later, Bracken has another go at the old man. He's received a formal letter from Rank informing him of his plans to show the film in America and the Empire. As the film is so boring, writes Bracken, can, can he really mean it? I cannot believe it will do any harm abroad except to the company which made it. And as this ministry has no reason for trying to protect the company from the consequences of its follies, I should propose to tell Mr Rank that he may make his own arrangements accordingly. And Churchill responds as if he's confusing Rank with Rommel. I do not agree with this surrender. The word surrender is not in our vocabulary, squeaks Bracken anxiously. As a result of our illegal ban on the wretched film, Colonel Blimp has received a wonderful advertisement from the government. It is now enjoying an extensive run in the suburbs, and in all sorts of places there are notices, see the banned film. If we had left this dull film alone, it would probably have proved an unprofitable undertaking. But by the time the government have finished with it, there is no knowing what profits it will have earned. And Churchill childishly ignores this letter. He's prompted by his private secretary and scribbles, leave it for the time being. 
And when the secretary asks again if he concurs with Bracken, he scribbles, No, I am obstructing. Leave it till Mr Bracken arrives. And if nothing else, this is an absolutely classic example of Churchill's kind of reflex obstreperousness. Now, the last straw seems to be a secret cipher telegram, this is really ridiculous, to Bracken from the Air Ministry. Rank has written again urging the film's export. And the Air Ministry writes... He says it has broken all previous box office records for the Odeon circuit of cinemas. In view of this, it's becoming practically impossible to maintain our illegal ban. Illegal ban. May we have directions? Bracken's publicity argument finally seems to take root. It takes another week to get the go-ahead, but the film is released. And I think the thing I take away from this, apart from Churchill's general strapperousness, is the unwillingness of his ministers to take really repressive action against these filmmakers, even in wartime. So finally... <laughs> Moving on a little bit, let's talk about film crime. Dr. Doolittle was a film put together on a wing and a prayer from the very beginning by its fast-talking producer Arthur P. Jacobs, who went on from managing talking animals in Doolittle to letting them rule the world in Plant of the Apes. Jacobs had assembled his cast, principally Rex Harrison as the chatty doctor, Anthony Newley and um, Richard Attenborough with great difficulty. He'd already had to fire his screenwriter, not to mention lyricist Alan Lerner, the man behind My Fair Lady, Brigadoon and Camelot on the grounds that he hadn't actually written anything. He also fired Rex Harrison, principally for being extremely annoying, and then even more embarrassingly had to unfire him and pay his second choice, Christopher Plummer, off for breaching his still wet contract. Part of the film was to be shot in St Lucia, but the main base of the production was Wiltshire. Jacobs had committed a million dollars of his budget and many months training animals in California for the complex shoot. Unfortunately, UK quarantine laws meant that none of these animals were available for the start of principal photography, and new British-based animal trainers had to make the best of it. Squirrels were doped with gin. Harrison claimed he was bitten over the course of production by chimps, a Pomeranian puppy, a duck, and a parrot, and other members of the production were trampled by elephants or contracted liver disease from the chimps. Caught up in the middle of this were not only the cast and crew, but the inhabitants of the village of Castle Coombe, near Chippenham which was doubling for Doolittle's pleasant seaside home of Puddleby on the Marsh. Castle Coombe was suitably pleasant and picturesque, and in fact the film Stardust was also shot there a couple of years back. But it did have one drawback from the production's point of view, in that it wasn't actually a seaside town, or indeed anywhere near. Jacob's production crew got around this by ingenious set decoration and by damming the river to form an artificial seafront. And you can get a good idea of what the set looked like in these photos um, from our collections, and we hold them because of what happened next. Let's start with Sir Ranulph Fine's account. He told police, A friend of mine recently read in the Daily Press that a film company was in the process of transforming a Wiltshire village, namely Castle Coombe, which has long had the reputation of being the prettiest village in Britain, for the purposes of making a film, and that there was much feeling in the village. This was a further case of mass entertainment treading roughshod over the feelings of individuals. We decided to find some means of showing to the company that individual feeling in the village had not been quashed and corrupted by offering parts as extras with accompanying salaries to all and sundry. Fox had provided security, guard dogs and a police patrol, which I have to say for a village the size of Castle Coombe must have been a little alarming. Nevertheless, Fines and three friends assembled near the village on the evening of Sunday, June the 26th. Fines went to the rear of Weaver's house where he placed three lots of explosives attached to delayed action fuses. His friend's role was merely that of lookout man. These explosives were to create a diversion. The plan wasn't, apparently, to blow up the hated dam, but to plant a banner on it, or possibly to use the explosions as cover for physically breaking it apart. It's not altogether clear. Caught standing on the dam by a policeman, Fine's friend Knight was the first to be arrested, and Fines came back to his car to find it surrounded by police officers. Now, Fyle says he tried to bluff his way out of things by boldly asking the officers for a tow as his starter motor was out of action. And whilst he was being questioned, one of the explosives which he'd placed at the back of Weaver's house commenced to flare up and the police rushed to the scene. These photographs were taken by the Daily Mail's photographer, whose name, if hysteria hasn't already set in, appears to have been Mr Tibbles, which makes him sound rather like a talking cat appearing in the production. Now, what we can see here is that not a lot is actually happening. It's not a big explosion. But what Fines didn't know is that inside that shed there is a drum of petrol and a 400-gallon oil storage tank. So the police <laughs> put out the fire, and Fines shows them where he'd planted the other devices which he proceeded to defuse, and they had been hidden near a compost heap and a fruit cage. This was plastic explosive, and Fines sheepishly admitted having some more and took the police to a wood at Lodsworth 
where he proceeded to dig up some tins which contained more sticks of explosives. In fact, the report says that these were in a dangerous condition and had to be exploded immediately. Obviously, the police wanted to know where these explosives had come from. Fines told them they came from a course he'd been on at Mons, but later admitted to the military authorities that he'd got them while serving with the Greys and with the SAS, but he hadn't wanted to attract negative publicity to these regiments. And in the end, Fines' his friends were all fined. The bungled raid didn't do any damage to the production, only causing considerable embarrassment to those involved. Anyway, torrential rain soon forced Doolittle back to the studio and then on to St Lucia. I should say that this shoot didn't get any smoother. Rex Harrison apparently took to downing cocktails before breakfast and sailing his boat into shot whenever he felt like it, ruining takes. And his wife faked her own death by drowning just to wind him up. Leonard Moulton calls this film a colossal musical dud. For reasons best known to Academy voters themselves, the film was nominated for nine Oscars, including Best Picture, which just goes to show that cinema can be hard to understand. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your time. I'm going to make sure all the documents I've used are on your archives uh, next week. Have to take questions. Thank you very much. This event was recorded live on the 21st of January, 2010, at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>